listening to Season 7 of Bionic Planet, brought to you by Vera, the world's most widely followed environmental standard. Vera, standards for a sustainable future. And by Responsible Alpha, a new breed of collaborative, high-impact ESG consultancy helping investors, businesses, and communities transition to a low-carbon, sustainable, and equitable future. Responsible Alpha, being the best at what matters most. If you want to do community development, if you want to do large-scale conservation, if you want to build sustainable landscapes, very soon you realize small grants and medium grants will not get you there. And that's where, after 15 years of working in conservation and, you know, really running after the next small grant to survive, we realized that this was unsustainable and we needed other mechanisms. Marco Cerezo founded Guatemala's Foundation for Eco-Development and Conservation, or Fundejo, in 1991 to support the nation's national parks. Fundejo works in part by helping hundreds of small landowners secure their tenure and manage their farms sustainably. This improves their prosperity and takes pressure off of the forests. Like many organizations, he initially financed his operations through philanthropy, but he eventually realized that couldn't provide the scale or long-term viability needed to meet the challenge. And that's when we start really looking into other options. And of course, as youth, as conservationists, as people from the civil society, we were looking at banks and at impact investors as the enemy, right? And we're looking at carbon as something that was unrealistic, too hard to do. But as we learned more, and as we came to scale up, we realized that this was potentially the only way to move forward. But there's a reason he thought carbon finance was too hard to do. It almost is, especially in Cerezo's case. That's because in addition to the usual challenges of identifying threats to the forest, creating a plan for addressing them, carrying out that plan, and quantifying impacts, he had to get hundreds of farmers aligned in what amounts to hundreds of individual climate action plans, and in ways that could be verified and validated by independent auditors. The result is a project that, while small in the grand scheme of things, could provide a template for helping smallholders across Latin America and around the world slow deforestation as carbon prices rise. Our project is very small if you look at the forest surface. About 55,000 hectares now in the Red Plus Forest Perimeter. This, we are not a 2 million hectare protected area in South America. But to me, this is what Red Plus is all about. A very threatened forest, high deforestation rates, over 3% in center years, with lots of actors, and Red Plus coming in to provide incentives to real people, to real communities, to keep their forest standing. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. 
But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we examine it from the perspective of Guatemalan farmers who, in 2013, won the right to earn carbon payments for managing their land sustainably. I caught up to today's guest, Marco Cerezo, at last year's climate talks in Glasgow, Scotland. And if you're wondering why it took so long to get this episode up, it's because I'd planned on commissioning a Guatemalan reporter to interview farmers and others to bring this alive for you. But I didn't have the resources to do that properly. Fortunately, the interview stands well on its own. And if you want more on-the-ground coverage like we had in the early years of Bionic Planet, you can help me generate that by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode. Once again, that's patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Hello, my name is Marco Cerezo. I'm the uh, director of Fundaeco, a conservation NGO based in Guatemala that works in nature conservation, sustainable community development, and the fight against climate change. Let's go back to the early days because I wanted to talk about the lifelong journey that brought you here. Well, actually, I started working in conservation in my early 20s. I studied development economics, and while at college, I realized that nature was vital for the development of what we called then third world countries. But then, in the late 80s, there was a mission by a group of Guatemalans to NASA, and I had the chance to participate in that mission. And at the time, the expression climate change didn't even exist. We met with a couple of geophysicists from NASA at the Goddard Space Center, and they talked about something that had them very worried. They said, what the computers are telling us is that the planet is going to heat up really fast over the next decades. And they told us we're going to have stronger hurricanes, we are going to have desertification, and everything they told us at NASA in 1989 has already happened. So the worst case scenarios that they had at that time have occurred and we're still on the same track. So that hit me in the head. I was in my early 20s and I decided this is the most important thing I can do in my life. And I came back to Guatemala and actually created this NGO called Fundaeco. And your family history is interesting, too. Your father was a civilian leader after military rule and it was not an easy time. Yes, actually... Um, my father and my mother were opposition leaders. We had uh, dictatorships, military dictatorships in, in Latin America. Mm -hmm. And they had been fighting for democracy for many years. I actually ended up in Washington, D.C. in the early 80s as a teenager, fleeing the country. We actually had to leave the country. My mother taught agrarian law at the university. And you can imagine that was a very dangerous job. So we ended up in the States. That's where I learned my English. And actually, the States... It's also an important part of my life. I went to the national parks. Mm -hmm. I, I visited these beautiful areas in the States. And Europe had its cathedrals, its castles. Right, right. America had its beautiful forests, its beautiful nature. So I think that that also was very important in my life and in my training. Guatemala has its share of natural beauty, too. Of course, yeah. But it wasn't as protected and as accessible. You know, I think that what makes the national park system in the United States so unique is that it's extremely accessible to everybody and actually people are encouraged to go to the parks. In Guatemala, nature was kind of far away in the forest. We had gorillas there, so you really couldn't go into the forest. But the national parks taught me the importance of nature and of conservation. 
So you go to the United States in the early 80s. When did you visit NASA and when did you come home? I was in NASA in 1989. Mm -hmm. And I came back to Guatemala after my college studies. I actually studied in France with a very interesting economist called René Passé. He was a very pioneering thinker, I think. He started writing about what now we call ecological economics. And I became his disciple, you know, these teachers that really impact you when you're in college. And that made it, the combination of these factors made me really think that nature conservation and sustainable development were the most important things for the planet. I come back to Guatemala in 1990 and I create Fundaeco, the NGO which have been heading since almost 32 years. Uh -huh. And we dedicated ourselves from the onstart to this mission of nature conservation, but simultaneously looking at sustainable community development and the role of nature and natural ecosystems in an overall economic development strategy. And what is the role of nature in an overall development strategy? <laughs> well, basically, if we start at the village level, you know, rural villages, and of course, this now is obvious, but 30 years ago, this was not so obvious. We were talking about industrialization. We were talking about the ideology of progress, about how rural communities depended on their very livelihoods, on nature, from medicinal plants to the building materials for their houses, to food and nutrition, and for their spiritual lives. Now, of course, we have indigenous peoples here talking very loudly at the COP, but back then, we didn't think about these places. And I realized that even from a spiritual perspective, nature was very, very important for local communities. So we started from the onset working on land titling for indigenous communities, mm -hmm. of course, creation of protected areas, but from a land zoning point of view, not only biodiversity conservation, but looking at what now we call sustainable landscapes. And there was a third emphasis from the very onset of Fundaeco, which was women and young girls. We thought that we needed to support rural women if we wanted to push forward with sustainable community development. And how were you funded in the early days when you started out? Actually, Fundaeco started like many, many other NGOs with small grants. And I think that's part of the journey also, you know, going from very small grants, $10,000, $20,000 grants, then going up to the medium-sized grants and potentially participating in larger projects with multi-country projects by larger NGOs than us. So we started literally with very, very small grants, with lots of volunteers, you know, as always, a lot of youth energy, a lot of volunteering. But of course, very fast, you realize that this is not enough. If you want to do community development, if you want to do large-scale conservation, if you want to build sustainable landscapes, very soon you realize small grants and medium grants will not get you there. And that's where after 15 years of working in conservation and, you know, really running after the next small grant to survive, we realized that this was unsustainable and we needed other mechanisms. And that's when we started really looking into other options. And of course, carbon was the main one. The traditional school of conservation in Latin America was very much influenced by the preservationist view of the United States. And uh, I saw my colleagues, a lot of my biologist colleagues, were looking at nature and thinking we should not touch nature. You know, it was almost putting it into a museum and looking at it. Uh -huh. And I used to go a lot into communities. I used to work with young boys, farmers, young women. And I realized that living in the city from a very Western perspective, we're looking at nature as the uh, backdrop of our lives. You know, we go to nature on weekends or on vacations. But I realized that really, the only way to live sustainably was to live with nature, in nature, in ways that do not harm her. And I think that sustainable landscapes come from this realization. We don't have to look at nature from an outward perspective, from the outside, 
but we have to realize we are always, even here at the COP in Glasgow, we are embedded in nature and communities can and are often living sustainably with nature. So I think that sustainable landscapes is making that cattle pasture, planting trees there, making sure it has big palm trees, making sure that there are fences with trees, making sure there are thickets of forest. And that pasture can become actually sustainable. Looking at a subsistence farmer and introducing agroforestry, fruiting trees, protecting his soils and realizing that this subsistence agriculture can also become sustainable. We do not need to have pristine protected forests in 100% of the territory. If we have protected forests in 35-40% of the territory and the rest is occupied by agroforestry systems, sustainable cattle pastures, managed forests, restored secondary forests, and even green towns, you know, towns with urban forests, then the landscape is a sustainable landscape and the image we use, the metaphor we use is a bird coming from New York can actually go across Guatemala from one urban park to an agroforestry plot to a managed forest to a national park and it will be perfectly fine migrating to this sustainable landscape. This is the metaphor I use when I talk about sustainable landscapes. Another analogy that I've always liked about agroforestry is that you're growing up instead of out. You know, you've got, uh, some people call it three-story farming. You've got the, the, the food crops on the bottom, you've got the, the cows in the middle, and then you've got the tops of the trees providing silage and fruits. Yeah. And also agroforestry is looking at nature and trying to imitate the virtuous circles of nature. And one of them is soil conservation, right? It's building soils, agroforestry, nitrogen fixing trees can actually build soils while you produce your food. Uh, so originally a lot of people, a lot of farmers in Latin America, you have to remember Latin America was built thinking that these forests were great agricultural lands. In fact, the material, the biological material, the organic material is in the soil and in the forest. So once you take out a rainforest, the rain washes the soil away yeah. and you end up with very poor soils. Sustainability, food security have to take into account agroforestry and conservation. Okay, it's, it's getting clear to me now. You guys come in, you work with all these individual farmers, you work with these landowners, you help them implement these strategies and these practices to improve their land, make their land management more sustainable, take the pressure off the forest, the protected areas. So you end up with protected areas within a mosaic of, of human activities. Exactly. And when did you turn to carbon finance? Actually, you know, as we started doing more agroforestry, working with more communities, as we started planting trees and we started having an actual network of protected areas, the small grants weren't cutting it. We didn't have enough money to keep it going. There were some generous donors with medium-sized grants, but even then, you know, $150,000, $200,000 a year were not allowing us to build these landscapes. And then two things happened. First, donors started looking at Africa. Guatemala was becoming a middle-income country. Mm -hmm. So donations and grants started drying up. And then after the peace agreements were signed, Guatemala became less in need of large donations. Right. So donations and grants started drying up. So what we had to do, if we wanted to survive and if we wanted to increase the scale of what we were doing or maintain the scale of what we were doing, was to look for more sustainable sources of funding. And that's when we started looking at two things, at carbon as a potential source of revenue, but also at, at investments. You know, originally, as youth, as conservationists, as people from the civil society, we were looking at banks and at impact investors are, as the enemy, right? And we we're looking at carbon as something that was unrealistic, too hard to do. But as we learned more and as we came to scale up, we realized that this was potentially the only way to move forward. Mm -hmm. And then I met... Uh, 
a couple of guys that were creating an impact investment fund uh, in London, the Althelia Climate Fund, which was a venture fund. We all took risks. They took risks of starting to look at a small NGO from Guatemala. I think that was very risky for them from many perspectives. And I was looking all of a sudden at an impact investment fund based in London. So I think it was like getting to know these other actors. Uh, and this started in 2011. It took us three or four years to actually get the project going, but they came to Guatemala. We took them to the communities. They understood our model, the pieces of the model that were not just park guards, forest protection, don't touch the forest. It was conservation plus community development, plus agroforestry, plus health for rural women, plus scholarships for young girls, plus land titling for indigenous communities. And this was the model that convinced them. So we ended up launching one of the earliest and largest investments from the Altelia Climate Fund in Central America that allowed us to design, develop, and register a Red Plus project for Caribbean Guatemala. And that's where it all started, and that's how I ended up at the COP here in Glasgow. Now, the whole thing about carbon finance is you have to demonstrate that your actions are either adding more carbon to the land or preventing it from being removed, and your situation was, was pretty complicated. Where were the methodologies then? Did, you, did they exist or did you have to create them? So actually, our challenge was very big. Guatemala is a small country. We have a lot of people in that small country. And in Caribbean Guatemala, we had a lot of farmers, small forest owners, indigenous communities owning forests. So we actually had to design one of the earliest grouped projects. And we ended up building the largest group project in the world. Over a thousand forest owners and over 700 forest parcels were included in the project. And I don't know if you realize this, we had to sign carbon contracts with over 700 people. Wow. So it was teaching them about carbon, because signing the contract was actually the easy part. We had to explain what carbon was. Right. We actually had to explain how this was going to work. We had to think through a benefit sharing mechanism to make sure that most of the carbon revenues ended up with the communities. We did a long process, a long free prior and informed consent process that took three years of consultations, over 3,000 leaders from the elders in the villages, the rural assemblies, rural assemblies at the village, all the way to the governor, the mayors, the public officials. So the free prior and informed consent process was carried out over two years. And this was, of course, something that took a long time. But in the end, we ended up then, as I said, as with the largest group project, over 700 parcels of forest. Our project is very small if you look at the forest surface. About 55,000 hectares now in the Red Plus Forest Perimeter. This, we are not a 2 million hectare protected area in South America. But to me, this is what Red Plus is all about. A very threatened forest, high deforestation rates, over 3% in center years, with lots of actors, and Red Plus coming in to provide incentives to real people, to real communities, to keep their forest standing. And those incentives, of course, were technical assistance. They were access to forest protection subsidies and conservation agreements. They were health clinics for rural women, scholarships for young girls, and of course, joint patrols with the communities. Because once a community accepts and signs a carbon contract, we are not the adversary, we are partners. And actually, we have many, many instances of communities patrolling with Fundaeco Park Guards and with security forces, with the national police. They're patrolling their forests because they know that they're going to generate Red Plus revenues into the future with that. 
Yeah, this is pretty difficult. You've got two different learning curves here. One is your own because, I mean, Red Plus is difficult to begin with, and you've got these 700 landowners, and while people have tried this kind of stuff before, it's been hard to pull off. Uh, Red's usually been on large, contiguous pieces of land like large indigenous areas or something. So you had to go in, you had to identify all the usual red stuff. You had to identify the drivers. You have to quantify the impacts they have. You have to quantify the impacts of your interaction. Then you have to convince the verified carbon standard or whoever you're operating under that what you're doing actually works. How did that whole process play out? How did you go from knowing you had to do it to getting the concrete, uh, the ducks in in a row, to then going out and engaging all these people on the land? Well, you have to remember that Fundeco had been working for about uh, 20 years when we started this project in the area. So we knew the communities, the community had learned to trust us, we had many local partners. So this, of course, was a key element. And I think that this is what local conservation NGOs, local community-based organizations can bring to the table. They are working day in, day out with the communities, as I say, rubber boots on the ground. And that's why we provide, you know, we are there, we know about the communities, we know the conservation actions that we need to take, we know the deforestation drivers. So this is what we bring to the table. Regarding the carbon technical aspects, as the saying goes, you know, a 1,000 mile journey begins with a first step. And we had to take this very, very literally, starting to learn from scratch. We were not carbon experts, so we had to appoint a Red Plus coordinator We actually had to bring GIA's capabilities to the organization to start learning about carbon. Of course, we had a lot of help. And I would like to mention one of our key partners was a consulting firm based in California called Eco Partners. They were also some of the early birds in the carbon world, and they helped us a lot design our project. So we had support from several donors to design our project. I should say that that's where medium sizes come in. And I think that's where blended finance can actually have an impact because we had support from the Darwin Initiative from England. We had support from the French Fund for Nature, the French Fund from the Global Environment, FEFEM, and they helped us put together the project. The entry costs are big, I won't lie. So we had to invest in the pre-feasibility, then the feasibility, and then the design of the PDD, the project design document. But on the way to do this, we learned about carbon and we started feeling more comfortable. We started realizing that this is not something we have to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. And we started taking step after step after step. And now we're highly proficient, I would say, in the design of carbon projects. And we're looking at potentially helping other NGOs in Northern Central America develop their own Red Plus projects and carbon projects because we have developed a very important knowledge asset in the organization. You talked about free, prior, and informed consent, FPIC. Um, isn't that a misnomer here? I mean, to me, the term comes out of needing to protect people. It sounds like you're coming in, you're telling people what you're going to do, and then you're just letting them know what it is, and you're making sure they sign off on it. Whereas in most red projects, and you especially, you, you have a project like this, you can't just come in and say, this is what we're going to do. You have to actually get them on board. So you're really partnering with them. What What was that process like? Well, actually, again, we had been working with these communities for a long time. But free prior and informed consent means basically that you have to explain in a great detail the project to them. I remember them saying, how are you going to take the carbon to New York or to the places where you're going to sell them? We had to explain about, and we had these beautiful, you know, vinyl signs in which we explained the carbon cycle and we explained a little bit of chemistry 101 about carbon so that people understood that these trees were breathing in 
CO2 and breathing out oxygen and that the carbon was there stored. So very, very painstaking process, but people learn a lot. And we started actually bringing community leaders to the COP in Cancun. So we were very transparent to them. And this process was very important. We were building capacities and we were working with communities. And here is a very important thing. You cannot do a grouped project without having each forest owner, each community forest owner, coming to the table, assign a carbon contract. And they will not do that if they don't fully understand, one, and two, if they don't feel they're going to have benefits to their communities and to their members. So I think that this is very important. And when I hear people saying that Red Plus is going to displace communities, I think that if it does that, it's because the project has been badly designed. Because if Red Plus is adequately designed and adequately implemented, you are bringing to the conservation table the communities that own and control the forest, and you're actually making them partners in conservation. There is, however, a very important point. In the very early years, the project actually started generating carbon credits from 2015 onwards. Carbon credits had very, very low prices. So the first 3 million carbon credits of the project were sold below 2 euros, 3 euros. So it was really very, very low price. This helped us pay the impact investment loan that we had received. But the prices weren't big enough to ensure direct fund transfers to the communities. Now we're getting to a point where carbon credits are starting to be more valuable. And of course, there's a cohesion element. Forest owners need to feel they're benefiting. And of course, they ask us, Marco, when do you think that carbon credits are going to get to a point where we actually start receiving direct revenues? And we think that's going to happen this year, by December of this year, or as early as March of next year, when carbon credits are getting to prices where we can actually cover implementation costs of the project and make direct payments to forest owners so that they can take better care of their forests. So I think that, again, of course, the carbon market was imperfect. Mm -hmm. It was a very obscure market at one point, but now it's getting to be more and more transparent, more and more competitive. And we have gone from a buyer's market to a seller's market. And actually, we're in the opposite point. Here at COP26, I've had many meetings with people asking for our credits, asking because they're high biodiversity impact, high social impact, high gender impact credit, carbon credits. When you buy one of our credits, you're protecting the rare endemic frog. You're also supporting legal titling of indigenous communities, and you're also supporting scholarship for young girls and access to sexual and reproductive health for rural women. So these are what I call gourmet carbon credits, <laughs> like gourmet coffee from Guatemala. So now we're getting a lot of demand, and now, of course, the market is starting to work in our favor. More demand, and a limited offer, verified, strong, verified carbon units, so the prices are going up and our communities are going to benefit because we have a very transparent benefit sharing mechanism in which we get a very small portion of the payment of each VCU for project implementation costs. And then above this point, everything goes to the forest owner because we're a nonprofit and we want to benefit communities. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, if you could flesh that out, because you had risk, you had investors you had to pay, and then you've got the farmers and the landowners and the indigenous people, and your goal is really to help them. How did you work out the benefit sharing? How did that work? What's the, the formula? Well, each project, I believe, has to design its own benefit sharing mechanism according to the, the reality of their communities. In our case, Guatemala, again, is heavily populated. Our forests are under high pressure. So we had to design a benefit sharing mechanism that in which 
the project delivered technical assistance and other benefits like scholarships, uh, health, and support to patrols for community forests. But we also had to design a mechanism in which above a very, very low price of carbon that we left in the rearview mirror many years ago, above that price, and I can't say it out loud because of NDA reasons with our investors, but above a very low price, everything goes to the forest owner. And he's going to use that money to plant more trees, to protect his forest, and of course, to benefit his family. So each project has to design a benefit sharing mechanism that maximizes the possibility of that forest staying there into perpetuity. How much does that really translate into? I keep thinking of some of the early projects, some of the first episodes. I looked at a large agroforestry program in Kenya, the one with uh, VI Agroforestry in, in Mount Elgon. And the farmers there, their average size was four acres. Or was it four hectares? I forget. But the carbon benefit to the individual farmer is kind of an afterthought, but it made the overall program possible. And, and this sounds different. This sounds like the carbon benefit is more tangible to the landowner than it was in that case. Well, in our case, we have both, I believe. And also in the carbon contract we signed with the communities, there was a very specific clause saying that the traditional uses of biodiversity were allowed and could continue in this protected red plus forest. In other words, we are not displacing any traditional use. For instance, the medicinal plants, the palm fruit that they are traditionally consuming, all these traditional uses that do not affect the carbon yield are being still carried out. So in other words, we are not displacing the traditional uses of biodiversity. So the community gets one, it keeps on receiving the livelihood benefits of that standing forest, which were going to be lost if it were deforested. Two, they keep on receiving the technical assistance and direct and indirect project benefits from project implementation. And three, they are going to get direct red plus payments once prices get above a certain level. So I think that in our case, we have a very neat and very integral benefit sharing mechanism, which includes, of course, the traditional benefits of that forest being there. Because as we must not forget, if that forest disappears, the main losers are those communities that were depending on their livelihoods on that very same forest. Mm -hmm. And the actual carbon benefit that you calculate, like, because you know, you have protected forests that you're probably impacting, but you can't get a carbon benefit because they're protected and that protection is enforced. Like, where does the carbon benefit come from? Is it only what happens on the land of the people you're working with? And what kind of positive overflows are there? Well, I'm not an expert in carbon. I'm a conservationist and an economist. But what I would say is that, you know, you can always criticize a methodology from the outside. And I think that, of course, each methodology is a defined set of standards. And you will always be able to criticize it from the outside. I think that we use a methodology that calculates the historic trends of deforestation and applies those percentages of deforestation to the standing forest that are within the forest perimeter. We had some criticism because someone said, but I look at the image and some forest was lost in the region where you have your project. And I said, yes, but that forest belonged to someone that was not within the red plus forage forest perimeter. In other words, that person probably decided three years ago he was going to cut that forest and that he didn't want to go into the carbon forest project. So we're not claiming we are stopping all deforestation everywhere across the region. And of course, you can criticize that methodology, but again, we are using the valid methodologies that are approved everywhere and that are approved by the market. On the other hand, 
some people forget that our project has 55,000 hectares within its perimeter, but that we are protecting with our actions over 100,000 hectares of forest. That means that with carbon funds from 55,000 hectares, we're actually protecting over 100,000 hectares and that could potentially be in the project, but that for one reason or the other have not been included yet. So that means that carbon revenues are actually having a huge social and conservation benefit that doubles the amount of forests that are within the forest perimeter. And I think that many, many Red Plus projects are like this. They are getting carbon benefits from a certain part of forest that was because the government allowed it, because communities allowed it, because private owners allowed it. They're getting funds from this part of the forest, but they're protecting larger swaths of forests across the region. So I think that this is a very, very important element. And again, I think that Red Plus is not the panacea either. You know, it's another tool in our toolbox. Fundaeco also does conservation agreements with owners. We also do land acquisitions for conservations. We create municipal and community reserves. We work with sequestration credits to plant trees and get credits for carbon sequestration. So I think that we should get out of this mentality of black and white. That is either evil or holy. That it's either perfect or we have to abandon it. I think that we have a conservation tool set and Red Plus has become a very, very powerful tool set in favor of conservation of biodiversity and community development. But it has one big difference. It is sustainable and it links conservation to the financial instruments and the financial investments at the scale we need to go faster and bigger in conservation. Because small grants, medium-sized grants are great. They put us in the, on the learning curve, but they're not going to be enough to go at the scale that we need to go if we really need to stop climate change on its tracks in the next 10 years. And small grants also, and they don't last that long. When you do a carbon project, what's the, the time horizon you're looking at? Well, a small grant is going to be from six months to a year. A medium-sized grant is going to be two to three years. So we were trapped in this circle. After a year or two years, we were desperate saying, how are we going to pay the salaries of the staff next year when the grant is over? A Red Plus project is traditionally designed for 30 years, which can potentially be extended if the methodology allows for it. So that really gives us another time perspective. And it also allows our organizations to think in a, at a different scale. Now Fundaeco is looking at succession plans. You know, although I started very young, I'm not that young anymore. So we start, have to start looking at succession plans. We have to start looking at elders in communities teaching the youth. We have to start teaching the next generation of conservationists. And I think that this time scale of 30 years also allows us to think across the board about sustainability, financial sustainability, institutional sustainability, social sustainability. And I think that's another plus of Red Plus. I think it, to finish with this point, I think that Red Plus forced Fundaeco to center on KPIs, to strengthen its monitoring systems. And I think that this made it a stronger institution and allowed us now to be sitting at the table with larger donors and also with larger investors that can help us move to the next forest or to the next landscape to replicate this beautiful experience in Caribbean Guatemala, which we very fondly call the Conservation Coast. Would it be possible to look at how the baseline was established, or is that too wonky and complicated to go into right now? Well, actually, I think there's a saying in English that says the devil is in the details, right? But in our case, we had it easy. The government of Guatemala had been approving 
forest cover maps every five years. Uh -huh. So we basically use the national official forest cover maps that were being used over the past 10 years. So we basically extrapolated the national deforestation rates. We then did a regional study and we did a subnational or jurisdictional deforestation rate for that region. Right. And that regional deforestation rate, historic deforestation rate, was then applied to our calculations in the project region. Of course, now we're entering another whole arena with NDCs coming into line, with countries making national reference levels, with the standards trying to articulate themselves with the national frameworks. But I think that those are details. Yeah. I think that the standards, the governments, the buyers have to make this work because I've been working in conservation for almost 32 years. I think that this is the most powerful tool I've seen for biodiversity conservation and sustainable community development since I started working in this. So I think that it, it puts forest at the center of a global strategy. And I think that we should not throw away the baby with the dirty water. We have to improve the standards, we have to make our projects stronger, we have to improve our benefit sharing mechanism, we have to make everything more transparent, but I think that Red Plus has a very, very important role to play, particularly over the next 10 years. If we want to mobilize $500 million or $1,000 million for tropical rainforests everywhere, I think that the fastest way to do it is to provide training on carbon to local conservation NGOs, provide training on carbon to communities, to forestry communities, and then move those capitals at the scale and at the speed that is needed to save these forests. Marco Cerezo of Guatemalan NGO Fondejo, closing out this edition of Bionic Planet, brought to you by Vera and Responsible Alpha. You can learn more about the Guatemalan Caribbean Coast Project in today's show notes, and you can also help me produce more and better episodes of Bionic Planet by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support me for just $1 per episode, but with a monthly cap. You can also help by giving us a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access us through. That matters because the more stars we get, the more ears we get. And the more ears we get, the more minds we can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. That's all for today. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening. <laughs>